Jesus, who lived and died. Someone who is called a Christian, someone who is a Christ follower, is the one who understands who Christ says he is, understands who God tells us that we are, and who surrenders their life to Christ unconditionally. In verse 13, Paul reminds the church in Colossae, and through this letter to them, us as well, he reminds us who we really are, rather, who we were. We are not all princes and princesses, regardless of what your mama told you when you were growing up. You're not someone who is inherently good, someone who's, you know, just the perfect person. No, that's not who we are. Not in the eyes of God. Maybe in your mom's eyes, but not in the eyes of God. And I'm not saying this to crush your dreams, but to point to you what the scripture is saying. It says that we were in the domain of darkness. Paul reminds us that our position before God was one that brings despair. In our natural state, in our sinful state, we were in a domain of darkness. We were in a place of despair. The realm of darkness is a description for our sorry state that holds no light and no hope for us. This is the person apart from Christ. The domain of darkness is the power, the authority, the rule of darkness. It is oppressive is something that cannot be shaken off or escaped from of our own, of our own strength, of our own attempts. It's control. It is over everything. The domain of darkness is sin. Every human being is born into sin. Thus, we were in the domain of darkness. It's not a matter of choice of nature. So we do not choose to be righteous or wicked we are born unable to make that choice, truly. We know from all over Scripture that we have fallen, that there is none righteous, there are none who seeks after God. That's what we call man's fallen state or fallen condition. It is our place before God, apart from Christ, one of darkness and despair and sorrow. And Paul reminds us of this. But if you're following along with me, I skipped over the first few words, right? I just jumped ahead. It's not because those words aren't important. They are super important, but if we just glaze through everything, the reality of it won't set in. The weight of it might be missed. If we do not acknowledge what this domain of darkness is, what our hopeless state was, we might miss the beauty and the glory of Christ. The scripture says in verse 13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness. We, us in this verse, being those who have followed Christ, those who have surrendered to him, who have trusted in him for salvation, are not in that domain of darkness anymore. We are not slaves to our sin anymore. We are not powerless. We have instead been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. We have been taken out of hopelessness and instead been placed somewhere that is the complete opposite. We have been given the most hope that there could possibly be in Christ. We're no longer in the sorry state. He has brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light, as 1 Peter 2.9 says. So there was a transferring and a transaction that took place to take us out of that sin and to place us into his kingdom. Notice it says in the verse, the kingdom of his beloved son. Not the kingdom of Oceanside, 
not the kingdom of California or the United States. It's not an earthly kingdom. It's the kingdom of his beloved son. This kingdom stands opposed to the kingdom of darkness. It is a kingdom that can only be reached through the blood of our Savior. It's not a physical place, but rather a stance before God, or place before God, somewhere that we could not hope to achieve. It said that the kingdom, the domain of darkness was sin. This is where we were. But instead of a sinful, dark, dirty life, we now have redemption instead in Christ. We have the forgiveness of sins in Christ. Somewhere where we were stuck, we were in that, that, that bog, that mire of sin, we have been washed in the blood of our Savior. What was holding us down in filth and sin is gone. We have a kingdom that is filled with hope in Christ. No longer are we in darkness, but his light. When it says he rescued us, the word there is rumai, which means to pull out or to deliver, to snatch away from danger. Because we were in danger. Our souls were stained with sin to the point that there was only one destination worthy of us. And God, in his infinite wisdom and his infinite love, snatched us out of the jaws of hell where we were headed to our destruction. And it says that was through his son. His son is the one who rescued us. His only begotten son, Jesus Christ, is the key to our being saved from hell. Now, as Christians, we know this, but we have to be reminded of this. This is our motivation for life. Now, if you didn't grow, grow up going to church, or maybe this is your first or second time coming to church, and this sounds like gibberish to you, the truth of the matter is, apart from Christ, there would be no forgiveness of sins. Because we're all sinners, we'd be judged by God to an eternity in hell for our sins, and rightly so. This is what we deserve because we had sinned against a holy God. But Jesus, God's own son, he came down and he lived a perfect life without sin, a life that we could not since we were born into sin. He lived that perfect life so that he could die in your place on the cross, taking the punishment from God on himself and then rising up on the third day as proof of God's acceptance, he extends to you forgiveness. He offers forgiveness of your sins. He offers you rescue from the domain of darkness, from the hurt, from the shame, from the filth of sin. He offers you salvation. If you just believe in him, you repent of the sins that you've committed against God, you have this forgiveness. And this is the joy that us Christians know. No matter how hard life gets, no matter how sorrowful, we have joy knowing that our biggest problem, our deepest, most dirtiest problem has been solved. Our sin before God is taken care of. And we had gone from a life of darkness and of misery all the way to a life of forgiveness, salvation, and righteousness. This is what Christ offers. This is why we come on Sunday. This is why we preach on, on Sundays, on Wednesdays, on Thursdays, on Fridays. It's why we meet for discipleship because Christ has delivered us from certain death, from certain despair, from co the complete wickedness that was in ourselves. 
This is the joy that the Christian has. It's a deliverance from sin and eternal reward because we get to be with our Savior in the end. We get to live with him. We get to enjoy his presence where we were cut off from God before because of our sin. Now we get to enjoy his presence. Because of Christ, because of God's son, we have redemption, this forgiveness, redemption, the word apolytrosis, meaning redemption or the paying of a ransom. It's deliverance, it's release. We are set free. We were enslaved to sin before. There was no escape for us, and he paid that ransom for us. He pulled us out of the mire of darkness, of sin, and he washed us in his blood. This encapsulates Jesus' work on the cross, that payment. He shed his blood on the cross that day as the payment for our sins so that we could be delivered from this darkness. So to say that Christ is our motivation This is what we mean, that Christ would come down, he would condescend to the point of taking on a body. Think of this, he took on a body with the sole purpose of that body being brutally murdered for you. The body that was prepared for him was prepared so that it would be killed. Christ died in our place. This shows the love and the mercy of God. Now, if this God who we've lived in rebellion against our whole lives, still shows us so much mercy, so much grace, how could we not be motivated to love him back? If our whole life was at enmity with God and he still forgives you, pays the penalty for your sin and welcomes you into his family, how could we not be thankful? How could we not be motivated to chase after him, to follow him, to love him? How could we have any other response than one of gratitude? to the one who delivered us from the hopelessness of darkness and brought us in with forgiveness and gives us joy. 1 John 4.19 says that we love because he, what? First loved us. Those who are stuck in the darkness, those who are stuck in sin, do not know true love. Doesn't matter what TV says or what Disney says, There is no true love outside of Christ. In this is love that Christ died for us. He loved us first. This is how we can face the day, the week, the difficult talk with your child, the mocking coworker, the hateful classmate, the persecution that comes in all shapes and sizes and all forms. This is how we can face that. Our sins have been forgiven. Our biggest problem is taken care of. And through that, Christ has shown and proven his love for us. When Christ is central in your life, you have the greatest motivation ever given. Knowing the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, he loves you. What greater motivation do you need to live a life that honors him? The Almighty God loves you died for you, took your sin, and frees you. He carried your sins, and now he asks you to follow him. The Christian knows this and rejoices because of it. When our eyes and hearts are focused on him, we need no other motivation to follow him. We have all that we need in Christ. And this is freely offered 
I will say this again, but if you do not know Christ this morning, you are stuck in that darkness. You are stuck in that sin. You are stuck in hopelessness. You do not know real love or real joy. But Christ freely offers it to you. You are hearing it here and now. His love is what allows you to hear this. The Christian rejoices in this. The non-Christian, you have to bow the knee. You have to accept him as your Lord because there is no forgiveness of sins. You are on a road headed straight to hell. You will pay for your sins if you do not bow the knee to Christ. But he has paid for that sin. Freely for you, he offers you forgiveness. Knowing that he loves you, you should need no further motivation to follow him. So in regards to motivation, Christ is the one who saves you. That's the first point for this morning. Your motivation, Christ is your savior. We're talking about the centrality of Christ. Even before he saves you, he is the very one who made you. So secondly this morning, your reason Christ is your creator. Your reason, Christ is your creator. Now this is something that people can waste their whole lives trying to chase down. Entire generations and, and movements and genres of entertainment are focused on finding the reason for life. They hold that it's some deep philosophical thing. I have to spend so many years in the jungle merging with nature I have to do, do, do so many good things. I have to make other people like me. Whatever it happens to be, they search and they search and they search for the meaning of life. That question, why am I here, has kept many people up at night. Let me tell you right now, the reason that you are here today is wrapped up in the fact that Christ is your creator. The reason that you're here today, that you exist is that Christ created you and he gave you a purpose. We're going to look at that. Let's look at verses 15 to 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 15 and 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens, on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. I'm going to back step a little bit. We've been told in many parts of Scripture that God is spirit. Right? We look specifically at the Holy Spirit this morning in equipping hour, but God is spirit. You can look at John 4, Psalm 139, Psalm 51. It's all over Scripture. So if he is spirit, he cannot be seen. But then we do get to see God. This this is amazing. Literally, when the second person of the Trinity took on flesh, he took on a body, people could see God. The people who were alive back then, they actually got to see Jesus. It says he is the image of the invisible God. God is spirit. He is invisible. He became visible. He took on flesh. People were able to interact with him, to see him. Suddenly, you can see God. The word there for the image of the invisible God is the words, ikone meaning representation or an exact image. It's not a reproduction, mind you. It's not a, it's not a picture. It's not a carving. 
It's not an idea. It means to be of the same nature. But now it is visible. It is something you can tangibly observe. He is of the same nature. He is himself God. God is made visible in Christ. I know many of you have heard these verses in Hebrews 1. Why don't don't you turn there? Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. Listen, he is the exact radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus is God. He has the authority of God. He has the nature of God. But he became visible for us. He became tangible for us. John chapter 1 reiterates that the word who created all things took on flesh. In the beginning was the word. The word became, the word was God. The word was with God. And then verse 14, the word took on flesh. These verses have all of this in common that a person of the Trinity, again, we talked about the Trinity this morning, took, is the one who created the universe. That person of the Trinity took on flesh. That is to say, Jesus, the one who created the world by the power of his word, is the very same person of the Trinity who, after being sinned against, took on the same flesh that he had created for us, and in that flesh he suffered and died for us in our place. He created us, he joined us, he died in our place. Now, to address parts of verse 15, some people will take this out of context. I just have to say this. The part where it calls Jesus the firstborn of creation, right? They say that that means that Jesus was the first created being, or he was a lesser God, right? Something like that. He's, he's a created demigod or something like that. That is not what this verse is saying. I'm talking about in verse 15 of Colossians 1. That interpretation goes directly against the entirety of Scripture. We have to reject it. It's not what Jesus himself says. Many times, I and the Father are one. That is not a relationship between a created being and the creator. That is one of the same nature, of the very same. He tells the, uh, these verses tell us that Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the word become flesh. Jesus is the one who spoke the universe into existence. He is the very person of God who created us, and as part of his redemption plan, of the Father's plan, he took on the very flesh that he had made. This blows my mind. He created us, and then he took on the frailty of the thing he had created to die for those whom he had created that had failed, and not only failed, rebelled against him. And I think that that fact can escape us very easily, especially if you've grown up in church. You hear these truths all all the time. God created us, God loves us, Jesus died for us, and sadly, we can become numb to those truths. 
God created the world. He has ownership of the world. He is the creator. God loves you. Out of creation, God loves you. To such an extent that God would take on the frail flesh that he had made to die for you. It's simple enough to understand. It's very difficult to accept because of our sinful nature. We don't want to submit. We won't listen. But think about this. God created the entire universe for a reason. I alluded to this earlier. The reason that he created us was not because he was bored. The reason that he created us wasn't because he was lonely and he needed us. Again, we talked about this earlier. The Trinity, they are in a perfect relationship with each other. If you had a good thing going, why would you bring someone else in and ruin it, right? That's how we would think. He didn't need us. He didn't see another God who had his own universe and was having fun and got jealous. That's not how that works. He is the only God. Simply put, God made us because he wanted to. Now, we don't maybe like that answer because we want to have some, some greater meaning to our lives. God created us because he wanted to. He created us with a purpose. This is where the purpose of your life is, to glorify himself. The answer to that question that people waste their whole lives on is so simple. God created you to glorify him. This is why humanity exists. This is why the universe exists. He created us because he wanted to and gave us a very special purpose, a very special job. And originally in the garden, when everything was good, the entirety of creation was doing this. It was singing his praises. You could look, you could see just how beautifully and how good everything was when it was made, and you could do nothing but honor the one who had made it. People still sing the praises of Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, when they see the, you know, the artwork that they've made. They see the beautiful buildings that people have made. See these, all these wonderful things, and you, can, you look at the one who created it and say they did a good job. The entirety of creation was made for the point of bringing glory to God. But as soon as we sinned, as soon as we went against that purpose that we'd been created for, we deserved to be removed. If you remember, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. I was trying to think of a good way to explain this, but if, if there's an inventor, right, he really likes coffee, he wants to wake up to a cup of coffee in the morning, he creates a machine, press a button, the next morning you wake up, there's a freshly brewed cup of coffee waiting for you, he makes it for that purpose, and then in the middle of the night he wakes up because that machine dumps boiling water on his head. What's he going to do with that? Destroy it, get rid of it, start over, whatever it happens to be? It did not serve his purpose. In fact, it's, it had hurt him. I'm thinking about the scenes from Iron Man where he's trying to build the suit and he's got these robotic arms helping him and it just keeps getting in the way. Eventually he just throws it in the corner with a dunce hat on its head because it's not doing what it's supposed to do. You get rid of it. If it's not doing what its, its purpose is, you get rid of it. It's a, it's a bad example because we're not machines and we can't injure God like that. But it kind of gets the point across. We were given a purpose and we purposefully rebelled. We purposefully went against that purpose. He is our creator. 
He has every right to tell us the reason he created us and to give us a job. He created us for a purpose. He tells us what our purpose is, and then we go, no, I don't want that. We forget this sometimes. We get wrapped up in our puny ways of thinking and our self-righteousness, as Shailen put it, our fallen notions of fairness, and we try to tell God what to do sometimes. Try to tell him what our idea of a good life is, the meaning of life. We tell God who created us to glorify him that the real purpose of life is to get a lot of money or to go on a lot of hikes or to make as many friends as possible before you die so at least you're not alone. No. God created us with a purpose to honor him. Look at verse 16 again. Colossians 1, 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. I don't have the time to go into detail about all those things, but it's everything about everything was created by and through Christ. But it says all things have been created through him. He is the creator. And what? For him. There's a purpose. All things were created by Christ. He's the one who gives purpose to his creation. He is the reason you and I are alive. We've been created by God, by Christ, for the purpose of glorifying him. When we say that he is central, Christ is central, right? We're talking about the centrality of Christ. It extends beyond salvation. It extends to the basis of existence. If there was no Christ, there would be no us. It is plain and simple. If Christ had not created, we would not be here. So the reason for existence is that Christ created us to glorify God. The reason we are here is to glorify him. So Christ is central even in our very existence at its most base level. And you who do not know him, who do not believe him, do not love him, he created you and he's allowing you to hear this today because he loves you. It is not some wishy-washy love. He created you, and he's offering you forgiveness. You have gone against the reason that you were created in your sin, in your selfishness, in your lies. Whatever it happens to be, you have offended God, and you deserve to be dismissed, to be removed, to be punished. But he loves you. He's allowing you to hear his word. He's allowing you to hear the forgiveness that he offers. Don't waste that opportunity. He loves you enough to allow you to hear this. So you've been told now, if you, if you were wondering, why do I exist? Why, do, why am I here? Now you know, God created you to glorify him. That is your reason for living. That is your reason for existing. You've gone against it, but he still loves you and he's still giving you a chance. So don't squander this opportunity. He died for the people whom he had created, who had rebelled against him, and he still offers salvation. So he is our motivation as our Savior. He extends his love to cover us. He is our reason as a creator for living and to continue to live. Lastly, your resource. Christ is your keeper. Verse 17, Colossians 1. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is before all things. At face value, two very um, possible 
interpretations, and they're both true. Before, meaning in terms of time, he pre-existed us. John 1. In the beginning was the word. He had already existed at the beginning. The other interpretation would be before in terms of priority. He is the first. That is also true. As Christ, as creator, Christ existed before all things because he pre-existed us. He created us. Pure and simple, he has come before us from eternity past. And this is how we trust in God because he never changed from eternity past. He remains the same. From before our world began, he is God. But also this is Christ, the firstborn of creation as we read earlier in verse 15. He is before us in status. He's, the title of a, a firstborn in that time was given to the first son that was born to a father and a mother. This first son would bear the responsibility of carrying on the family name, of taking care of the, the household. Typically would have a, a greater portion of inheritance and had a higher role or status than the other siblings. Right? It was a title of honor in many ways. And I'm not just saying that because I'm the firstborn. It's different now. But there was an enormous responsibility that came with being the firstborn. And this is, this is beautiful. It ties in with us being called children of God. He is the firstborn of creation. He is called the Son of God. When we are saved, we are called children of God. We are adopted into his family. But Christ is the firstborn. He has precedence over us. There is no way to get around that. He is God. He is above us. He is before us. But he still welcomes us. He still brings us in. In priority, before all of creation, before all of us, since he is himself God, he has priority. He has preeminence. And it is that God, that Christ, who has this authority, this priority, who stooped to die for you. Now, I know sometimes we can focus too much on either the deity of Christ or the humanity of Christ. We've touched on both, so I'm not going to delve deeper into that this morning. But know that the one who saves you is God himself, the God that you've spurned, the God that you've rebelled against, the God that you've rejected. For Christians in the past, for those who have not bowed the knee currently, that is the God who saves and so, Christ is before all things. In verse 17, he's the one who holds all things together. Right? According to this verse, Jesus holds the world together. That was a nursery song. I don't know if they still sing it, but he's got the whole world in his hands. Right? That is true. Christ is the one who created. He's the one who holds us together. Sometimes we forget that in our minuscule minds. We just think that, yeah, Sometimes maybe God doesn't remember me. Sometimes, yeah, maybe God's not hearing me this time. Maybe God isn't just, he's just not listening. When we think that in a difficult situation, we make things so much worse, right? We take our eyes off Christ, our Savior and our Creator, and try to pull ourselves out of the mire. We try to just, we're just going to buckle down and get through it. you've been in that situation where you're stuck and you're trying and trying, you've been working hard and you feel like you just can't keep going. 
Now I'll tell you what, your problem is not too big for God. Again, at church, you hear this, and you can say it and assent to it, and in the same breath, you can doubt it. It's wild, but it's true. Because we take our eyes off Christ. We take our eyes off of our Creator, of our Savior, of the God of the universe, and we look at ourselves instead. We look at our situation instead. Sometimes, maybe the problem is too small for God. We tell ourselves that. Yeah, it's a problem for you, but Jesus has the whole world in his hands, right? He's dealing with the wars overseas. He's dealing with trying to fix the economy. He's got all these big worries to deal with. Not going to worry about the fact that I can't afford rent this month, or my engine just blew up and now I don't have a car, or I lost all the groceries because the fridge died. It's so small. It's a, it's a problem for me, but God can't notice that. Don't think that way. From the farthest stretches of the universe down to the subatomic level, Jesus is holding the universe together. Even when your life feels like you're falling apart, he's holding it. He is in control. Don't try to limit God by your own presumptions and mistaken understanding. There is nothing too big. There is nothing too small. Think of it this way. He is already holding all things together. Verse 17 says it. The scripture says it. He is the one who holds all things together. When you come to him, you are not adding to an already overwhelming burden that he's carrying. He already has it. Something so small that's troubling you but no one else, he's already dealing with it. You are not adding something. You're not adding trouble to God. He gives us these situations very often so that we would learn to trust him. We would learn to run to him. We would learn to cry out to him. That huge problem in your life, he's already holding it. That minor annoyance, he's already dealing with it. You talking to him about it is not going to change that. He is already dealing with it. So run to him with with your problems. Run to him with your sorrows. Run to him with your joys. Thank him for what he's done in your life. You cannot limit God, the firstborn of creation, the creator, the savior. There's nothing you can do outside of his power and control. And this is the God who is offering salvation and his power to you. This this verse reminds us that he holds all things together. We looked at it earlier in Hebrews. He holds all things by the power of his word. He is our keeper. We're running out of time, so he's the one who has saved us. He's the one who has made us. He is keeping us. Now, we hold that in Christ, we have everything that we need. Let's turn to Second Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 2 to 3. Second Peter 1, verses 2 to 3. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the true knowledge of him who was called by us, who, is, who called us, excuse me, by his own glory and excellence. When we, create, when we say that Christ is central, he is 
central. He is essential. He has created us. He is the one who saves us. He is the one who holds us. There's nothing we can do to escape the Son of God. Now think, we have this truth. What happens in a church where this is not preached? What happens in a congregation where Christ is not proclaimed, where he is not the center? Simply put, it is a false church. It could be a cult. It could be misguided. But it is not a church of Christ if you are not reliant on Christ, if you are not preaching Christ. When Christ is not central. At RBC, we believe that Christ-centered preaching and ministry is paramount. As our creator and as our savior, he is the reason that we do ministry. Let this be very clear. To have a church that does not preach Christ is to have a building full of misled people. That is what you have. If Christ is not preached, he is not glorified. His salvation is not taught. And if Christ is not preached, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is why preaching must be Christ-centered. He has to be there. Sadly, this is the case with many so-called churches in America. Even here, Christ is not their message. At best, it's moralism or selfism with some scripture sprinkled in. They try to use the authority of scripture to lead people into hell. That is the seriousness of not having Christ-centered preaching, Christ-centered ministry in your church. We are not the only church that does it. Don't get me wrong. There are many, many good churches who proclaim the glories of the gospel of Christ. That is why we are here. But to fail to preach Christ is to fail our purpose as a church. This is why we are here now. Why we have not been taken up into heaven already. We are to proclaim the gospel of Christ. Now this starts at the pulpit, but it extends to every believer. Christ must be proclaimed from the front. He must be followed by the members of the church. The elders and the deacons, we, the leaders of ministries, must at all times be pointing the body to Christ. It must be leading in that way. But it is the responsibility of every believer, no matter how old, how young, to proclaim the good news, the gospel of Christ. Whether it's at a pulpit, whether it's on a street corner, whether it's one-on-one with a friend or a family member, Christ must be proclaimed. And this is why we are here. We have to be focused on Christ, centered on him. Otherwise, we cannot be the church of Christ. Christ is foundational. There is no church without him. There is no existence without him. So he must be preached. He must be proclaimed. He must be exalted in our lives and in our ministries. So again, he gives us all we need. He is our motivation. He has saved us. He has shown his love. He is our reason for living, for both existing and continuing on and following him. He is the one who keeps and he holds us. Let us move forward with assurance that God loves us and the power that he gives us to proclaim the gospel. Let us continue to draw nearer to him. Let us continue to lift him up in our lives as essential because he is, he is central. Let us to continue to proclaim the glories of this wonderful Christ to everyone we meet so that they may also come to know this beautiful Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious Christ. We thank you for the work that he did for us on the cross.
God, we, we pray that you would use us mightily to proclaim the glories of Christ, the centrality of Christ, Lord, the beauties of him. Help us as a church to make a stand on the centrality of Christ, to proclaim him, whether at home, whether at church, whether in ministries, whether at work or school. Let us be known for, followers, for being followers of Christ. Strengthen us, Lord. Do your work. In Jesus' name, amen.